Welcome to the Life of Tea podcast, where we discuss tea as self-cultivation. All the life lessons, zen, awakening, and insights that come through a life of Cha Dao. This will be the focus of this podcast, developing and cultivating ourselves and our spiritual practice through tea. If you're interested in the more linear aspects of tea, how it's produced or made, you might want to check out our magazine, Global Tea Hut, which also includes those topics. If you're interested in the practical aspects of brewing tea, we have a whole series of videos on YouTube called Brewing Tea. Also, you are welcome to come to our center, Tea Sage Hut, here in Miali, Taiwan, and sit a 10-day course where we incorporate all these aspects from the linear to the brewing tea to the spiritual cultivation all together, and you can take a deep dive and immerse yourself and ground yourself in this beautiful practice. We're so excited to have this forum to discuss all the life lessons that we can cultivate together through tea. Welcome, put on a kettle, get out some bowls, and let's drink some tea together. Welcome to the Life of Tea podcast. This is the first installment of a two-part series called The Extended History of Tea. When Wooded suggested this topic, I was naturally very excited because I'm a huge tea lover and also because I like history, but actually, to be honest, I don't know much about tea history beyond the Western perspective the last few hundred years. So this first part will be more of an introduction where we'll talk about the context and the general ideas surrounding the history of tea. And in the second part, we will get into the facts, dates, and details. Welcome back to the podcast, Wude. Hi, great to be here. So Wude, why did you insist on calling this the extended history of tea? Why extended? Uh, because I think in order to get started, we have to first expand a little bit the context and definition of history itself. We have to explore what history is and we have to uh, kind of ground and contextualize the whole topic. If we're going to tell the story of tea, it's not enough to just tell the historical story of tea in a strict sense um, for several reasons. So we have to kind of build a bigger map and then within that bigger map, we're going to put history itself. And that's why extended, because it's going to be larger than just the history of tea. So what I mean is that history, of course, is the written record of, of human beings, of human life and experience. And there's more to the story of tea, of course, than the written record. Mm. The written record is just, a, is just a one facet of the story of tea. There are other areas that we have to we have to color in using other tools. So history is like you could say maybe uh, the outline, but then we need charcoals and we need shading to fill to create a more livid picture of the story of tea to create a more full image that gives us a more clear understanding of where tea comes from. And for that, we're going to need all kinds of tools, not just the written record of of humankind. Also, the written record has several functional problems. History has, has issues. Um, one issue being that the further back in time you go, the more myopic history becomes. 
because less and less of the population are literate. Mm. So as you go back in time, even a few hundred years ago, half the population of the earth is when the printing press was in, was created in Europe, because it was actually started first in China. But when it was created in Europe, at that time, something like half the population of the earth was literate. So and going back, it becomes less and less and less and less and less. So less and less of the population is literate, the further back in time you go. That's the first problem. So the further back we go, the more myopic history becomes. Second problem with history, of course, is that the myopia travels along class lines. So not only is history getting more and more myopic as you go back in time, but that myopia is, is focusing in only on the perspective of the wealthy. Because as you go back in time, not only are less and less people literate, but the people who are literate are all upper class. They're all nobles and literati, etc. And the low class and their their perspective and their uh, worldview is not included. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's going to be very important when we start discussing the history of tea. You know, for example, it's important to t- discuss the history of tea in relation to what are usually called the three big uh, religions of China, right? Confucianism, Taoism, Confucianism, Buddhism. Mm-hmm. But actually there's four. Leaving out the fourth is a, is a symptom of what I'm talking about, of this myopia along class lines, because the fourth is, of course, the indigenous people mm-hmm. and their perspectives and worldviews and, and religions. So the hundreds of tribes in Yunnan, for example, aren't one of the great religions of China, even though the, their, their perspective and religions are older but they're not ethnically Han and they're not a part of that upper class literati. They're not a part of that historical record. So they're kind of all, you know, set to the side. This happens to indigenous people all over the world, of course. Mm-hmm. So uh, these two big issues are, are incredibly important, which, which is that the history becomes myopia, myopic. So we have a less and less of a record, the further back we go and the more, and the further back we go also the, more that it becomes only the perspective of the upper class and not of the minorities and ethnicities and poor people, etc. Also, uh, there's a second issue with focusing just on the history of tea, which is that uh, so much of tea's story is prehistorical, mm. predates the written record of tea. So, so much of its story is that. So if you're just going to use only history and take a scholarly approach and create a podcast or an article or a book or something that's telling the story of tea through the uh, written record, you're only really giving us a little like pinhole window into the house of tea. You're only showing us one teeny, teeny, teeny little facet of it because it's much bigger. The story of tea is much bigger than just the what can be uh, learned through the written record. So the written record, the history in its uh, purest form, it is only one one aspect of T's story. And if we're going to do a two part podcast, I'd rather talk about. I'd rather flesh out T's entire story and leave you with a deeper understanding of of T's story. And so we could call this podcast also the story of T. Mm-hmm. Uh, as opposed to the extended history. By extended history, though, I mean let's include all the myths. Let's include the 
the kind of cultural records. Let's include the more spiritual um, way of communing with this plant and understanding its story through drinking it and the things that are uncovered through through a deep connection to this plant. And when that happens, there's a sense that uh, slowly you start to understand some things that have always been a part of human beings' relationship to this plant. And that allows you another window into tea story, right? There's a Chinese saying that any hour of tea is a distillation of all hours of tea that have ever been. So this is one of the reasons that we uh, turn the bowl when we offer the bowl to our guests. We're symbolizing the time when people shared one bowl, mm. when they couldn't afford many bowls like we can because we're lucky. And so they uh, shared a bowl around and they would pass it around and, and they would turn it as they passed it so that the part that your mouth was on, you would you know basically turn it so another part would be offered to the person next to you. Mm -hmm. And that turning also kind of as it spun and went around the circle, is kind of like the earth orbiting the sun and also uh, turning on its axis. Right. And so it connects the ceremony to the cosmos. But we're doing that in a kind of gesture to... Uh, salute the fact that this bowl of tea is connected to all the bowls of tea that have ever been. Last uh, podcast, I spoke about the uh, teas being born with all the memory of all of its ancestors. So the plant itself contains within its DNA the memory of all of its ancestors. And so the act of drinking tea also, when you go deep into this practice, there are certain universals in it that have always been there that have always been a part of, of tea. And the deeper you go into those universals, the more you understand of tea uh, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, or 20,000 years ago, right? So it's, it, doesn't, um, it doesn't matter that there's not a historical record if you can reach out with your spirit and you can understand some of what happened and some of what continues to happen now. In other words, so some of the shading that we can put around the outlines that history has left us, some of the colors that we can add to make a more uh, full, rich uh, story of tea that helps us to understand tea's story much better. Some of those colors are made of our own spiritual experience, and some are made of myth. Uh, there's a, unfortunately. The word myth in the modern age has come to mean false. So we talk about the myth of this or the myth of that, and we mean the, the lie, yeah, um, which is terrible because myths aren't lies, they're metaphors. Mm. And sometimes metaphors contain deeper truths than literal truths, mm -hmm. right? The final, before we move into the beginning of the story, which I want to get to, there is one final aspect, final problem with the history of tea. Uh, so one is the, the it's getting myopic the further you go back. Two is that it's uh, traveling along class lines and therefore ignoring ethnic perspectives, ignoring uh, minorities and poor people. And then third uh, big problem is that uh, the history, the written record uh, tends to be corrupt because not only is it, written down by uh, the upper class, but it's often dictated by what the, the government and politicians of the time wanted people to think. 
So mm-hmm. the you know the control over writing and twisting it into propaganda is uh, was much stronger the further you go back in history. In fact, there's one one of the most celebrated historians in Chinese history. Uh, he he's he is so, so celebrated because he wrote the truth and endangered his family, and because when you upset an emperor in ancient times. They didn't. They didn't just kill you. They killed your entire family. Wow! Like all your cousins, everybody died. So they, if you really upset them, like mm-hmm. it was, it was enough. It wasn't enough that they just kill you. They kill everybody. So he, he, by telling the truth of what was happening, he was not only endangering his own, himself, but all the people that he loved. And he, so he's extremely celebrated for that, mm-hmm. for that fact, for the fact that he kind of stood up to the rulers and. Um, and uh, wrote the truth, and so that's a testament to the fact that he was unique. Mm-hmm. That most of the historians were writing what they were told to write, uh, as we say, history is written by the winners. So you always have to take it with a kind of you know you have to take it with some salt. You have to take it loosely. You have to understand that this is just one perspective, right? Uh, certainly. Uh, certain dates and facts are are assured, but uh, e- even that, even those dates, even those facts, even those time periods, can be misleading. Can can lead you astray in the story of T, which we'll we'll talk about as we get more into the story itself. So uh, I just wanted to contextualize this. This is why I called it the extended history of T, or we could just say the story of T, creating a full rich story of tea so you all understand tea's legacy more deeply and uh so uh we have to we have to use some prehistory we have to use some spirit we have to use some myth we have to use some records we have to understand we have to get to it through all these ways and i think that makes a richer more uh beautiful story as opposed to just uh recounting what was written down at specific times Mm-hmm. So what would be a good point of entry into the story of tea? The beginning is, is of course, uh, beyond even the human. The beginning is, is nature. It always has to be thus. We're talking about a plant. Um, the beginning is, you know, sometimes around a million years ago after an ice age, this camellia, is, these, these species of camellia, it's multiple species, not one. It's often assumed that it's just camellia sinensis, but it's not. And there's almost 20 species of camellia that are used to make tea, and, and that's growing. Uh, so these, this, this type of tree, this camellia tree, evolved around a million years ago after an ice age in you know what is today Yunnan. Um, and uh, there's a lot of debate over where it began, and I'm going to tell you my feeling. My feeling is the, that it began in the what's called the Five Mountain area of Linchang. Mm. When I've been to that area, the the uh, the the energy and the trees speak to me in that way. That this is the origin. This is the birthplace. The oldest trees are there. The feeling is there. It's really strong. So this again is not a, anything scientific. Um, there is some some loose science that suggests Yunnan over Sichuan because Yunnan and Sichuan argue over which is the birthplace of tea and there's evidence towards both Um, but it's hard to uh, really 
accept that data because you know there's pride involved so the yunnan wants to be the birthplace is help sell tea and so does Sichuan, etc so there's like marketing behind it it's like you know any a lot of scientific inquiry these days unfortunately you know mm. milk is good for you paid for by the dairy association yeah. right so uh, you know or coke's not bad for you study paid for by coke mm-hmm. so um so there's not you know it's not it's a little bit species it's a little bit um you know it's doubtful but there is some some uh, you know both genetic evidence and other evidence that suggests yunnan and also suggests linjiang it kind of verifies what i feel when i've been there dozens of times um all over yunnan and and certainly just felt a connection stronger connection to linjiang so you can take that with a grain of salt because it is my my uh, feeling and throughout this uh dialogue i'll i'll talk about i'll be sure to clarify the parts of uh this story that are you know more foo-foo or coming less from an account or a record and more, or or any kind of scientific data and more from my own feelings you know um so that's all that is the beginning of tea that's the the story of tea that's the um the the most of its story actually because that's a million years ago so if t's story was a thousand page book humans only enter it on page 999 yeah uh, so we we are the end of a very long story a story that's not told in words this is you know what i was mentioning about how this story has to be more than just the human um record of tea because the human record of tea then you get to into this thing that like you know nature is human that we've that we that the only part of it that matters is the part that we take and then it's a resource you know so this is the modern perspective that nature is ours it's a resource for us to use and that it is all unintelligent unfeeling stuff matter that we then adapt to our needs Whereas actually that's backwards. We come out of it. Mm-hmm. We're the we grew out of it. We're the flower that came out of its branch, which came out of its trunk, which came out of its roots. So we come out of nature. So we're its story as opposed to it being our story. So we're T's story as much as T is our story. Mm. So that's why we got to start with that nature part. But there's not much to say about it. You got to drink tea because those are the sutras that are written in the veins of the leaf. Those are the like non-verbal chemical transmissions. The story, as I said, the tea is born with the memory of all of its ancestors. All plants are, mm-hmm. and so within the cells, there's the DNA that has been carried on for a million years, and that's it has its story, and you can connect to that energetically, and uh, you can hear that story. Um, through the drinking of tea and that might seem foo-foo to some people but this is the life of tea podcast it's more about spiritual matters anyway so i invite you to just explore that um and then you know so it does eventually though enter the human story which is more of what we're going to talk about in these two uh discourses or dialogues is the human relationship to tea the human um, interaction with tea and when that happened is also unknown mm-hmm. it's certainly prehistory um so you know early on in the 2000s i was writing articles suggesting that the human relationship to tea was very ancient and um 
you know, some people scoffed at me and they were all suggesting like 2000 years or something. And I kept saying way deeper. Mm-hmm. And then they discovered some uh, caves that suggested like 3000 years, some cave paintings. And so they all said, yeah, yeah, 3000 years or 3,500. It's like, you know, they started interacting with tea and then, and then immediately painted it on caves. And then, uh, you know, I was kind of vindicated, you could say, a few years ago, they discovered a a Neolithic village in Sichuan. So that's like 15,000 years ago, Mm -hmm. plus, and they found tea seeds and teaware and unearthed all kinds of tea things there, which is some of the evidence that people use to to claim that Sichuan is actually the birthplace of tea. Mm. But uh, let's assume it's Yunnan, which I feel strongly about. I feel that it's not just Yunnan, it's the five mountain area of Linjiang. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so let's say it started in the five mountain area of Yunnan. You know, if 15,000 years ago people are using it in neighboring Sichuan, right? You already have to have at least hundreds, at least centuries for it to move from Yunnan to Sichuan. Mm-hmm. And all of this predates Han Chinese. These are, you know, these are Sino Tibetan people. These are, you know, uh, aboriginals that you know eventually they are what populated all of most of southeast asia or most of myanmar and and uh, laos thailand vietnam etc hmm. those kinds of people um, uh, and uh, so they but they're related also to tibetans and the there's kind of a blend between those Southeast Asians and the Tibetans. That's why we call them Sino-Tibetans. It's not the Aboriginals that live now. This is like their ancestors. Mm-hmm. And so their ancestors, these are the people who uh, discover, discovered tea, at least in a like daily way. Um, there is some speculation also that even predates that. Because something like, you know, 30... 40,000 years ago, there's this character called Yuan Mo. Mm-hmm. Yuan Mo is like a, a pre, you know, uh, a hominid that evolved alongside Homo sapiens sapien, like the Neanderthal man, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. It's just another species of hominid that eventually died out. Mm-hmm. And these ones lived in the Himalayas. Um, and they, they, they go back, we don't know how far back. Like I said, it could be 40,000 years. It could go back even further. It could go to a million. Uh, could go to several hundred thousands. We're not really sure about them. They've found some of their bones, though, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, dated some of them. This character, Yemmo, is like this hominid, this early earlier hominid, um, this kind of human. And uh, there's evidence that maybe they uh, chewed on tea leaves. Mm which maybe other animals did too, because they were moving a lot and through the mountains. And so um, having something caffeinated to chew on obviously gives you energy and helps you to move and climb. So there's there's a possibility that this like goes deep, deep, deep into history, maybe even into the animal kingdom, maybe even into like early hominids, like this Yuanmo character who was chewing on the leaves mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, you know, in order to be energized and connect uh, and certainly those early aboriginals they uh, they were you know very focused on tea the remnants of that is available through 
studying the culture of their descendants in Yunnan today, as well as through cultivating your own tea practice. You know, these early shamans um, were super connected to the to plants and nature, and uh, you know I think it's a it's a poor lens that we sometimes put on uh, to look at at the past of human of humanity. We put on this lens sometimes that we're the smart ones, mm-hmm. and our ancestors were all real stupid, right? And that like these early people were like bungling. Like they were discovering medicinal herbs by going around and just putting random things in their mouth. And then somebody died and they were like, oh, don't eat that one. <laughs> and then somebody got better and they were like, oh, yeah, that's the good one. Like I'm, I'm, I'm sure within the spectrum of all human experience, some learning happened that way. Yeah. But, um, you know, for the, for the amount of strength that our rational intellectual side has gained especially over the last 500 years we've lost other ways of knowing mm. other instruments and in, of knowledge and wisdom you know and there's good and bad in that there's, it's great that we've we have advanced our ration rational mind i'm super uh positively oriented in that way i'm not opposed to science is the greatest method for exploring this universe that humanity has ever created it's wonderful and having we couldn't live we couldn't organize ourselves into societies we couldn't have hope of improvement without advancing also our rational mind mm. the advancement of our rational mind the so-called enlightenment of our rational mind is a incredibly powerful happening in the history of humankind and and incredibly important but in this modern uh, world where there's a you know hyperemphasis on it where our education is all conceptual it's all textual people have a hard time accepting any truth that isn't backed up by uh, by tech by conceptual data they can't take something seriously if it's not organized in that way through language and concepts but there's other ways of knowing direct ways of knowing direct ways of perceiving like a touch like a you know there's a non-verbal way of communicating and uh our ancestors you know weren't as good at the rational stuff as we are today mm-hmm. but they were much better at that right so they they might not have been as skilled in in doing inductive or deductive reasoning and doing experiments and understanding the world through those methods but they were much more spiritually attuned to the language of the plants and the winds and the right and what that might look like from a rational perspective, from our modern perspective, you know, you could look at that in a lot of ways. Their ability to navigate the sea without any uh, charts or, you know, even astronomy. Some cultures like in the Pacific Islands, the ability of like Native Americans to track animals, to know where they're going to be, mm-hmm. to like look at a just a leaf and know which animal has passed at what time of day, to look up at the stars and then listen to the sound of the cicadas and know when the rains are going to come. Mm. know the weather based on the sounds of the animals around looking at the animals and learning from them all of this is uh, you know all this kind of uh, intuitive spiritual kind of nature wisdom uh, was much stronger in those days that muscle was much stronger it's very weak now 
right? Which, you know, a big part of what I think tea can restore in us is restoring that muscle. Because if we have that muscle and the rational intellectual gravity that we have today, those two combined, that's the like, that's a powerhouse for creating a much more beautiful and uh, balanced human being. And then with more balanced human beings comes more balanced societies, etc. Mm-hmm. So th- that intuitive wisdom was strong. So these people were talking to plants. They were communicating with animals. They were watching. They were listening in ways that, you know, it's very hard for the modern person living in a city in an apartment uh, using cell phones and, you know, et cetera, to understand. And But when you get into a tea practice, you begin to awaken that muscle and you realize that, wow, there's a whole world in there and that the language and concepts of the rational mind don't always work in there. Um, and you can look at some of the uh, like outer signs of that from the from the you know rational perspective, but a lot of it's just uh, more intuitive, more spiritual, more uh, direct, like mm-hmm. like a touch on the hand, like making love, like being dancing to some music very beautifully. These are direct connections to things that you can. You can't, I mean, you can talk about them rationally, but they doesn't get anywhere near the experience and the wisdom of the experience itself. So these early shamans, they were in tune with nature and they, it wasn't, you know, I'm, I'm sure some human experience was bumbling. Always, we're bumblers. <laughs> so certainly some dude ate some mushroom he shouldn't have and died and then people around him learned as a result, right? They learned, oh, you know, that's through reasoning. Right, through logic, oh, okay, don't eat that mushroom, it makes you sick. I'm, the, the, some of that happened, but that's not the entirety of our story. Right? And they weren't, not, most of their plants and their relationship to plants wasn't coming through bumbling. Right? These shamans were super in tune. They, that was their job. That was their role in their society, was to get in tune with nature and with the spirit and use the spirit to help guide their people. Hmm. And that's you know, what I'm saying. It's kind of been lost. Now we have a real strong rationality to guide us. And it can do that well, but is it really guiding us where we want to go? I, I would say it is a wonderful guide, but not alone. We need that heart. We need that nature wisdom as well. Uh, that's what makes us whole beings, which then create whole societies, which you know then allow us to fulfill ourselves m- much more powerfully. So... These early shamans were, you know, receiving messages. Mm-hmm. And one of the origin myths of tea highlights this. So one of the origin myths of tea is that there's this character, uh, Shannong, and actually he's involved in several of the origin stories of tea. Mm-hmm. But Shannong means divine farmer. He's a, a mythical being who was one of the early emperors of China and ruled for a thousand years. Um, what that means is a thousand years is just a really long time. In those days, 10,000 was the largest number. So the, the 10,000 things means everything. Mm-hmm. That's a, in the you know all the ancient classics, the 10,000 things. You'll, you'll encounter that a lot, that phrase, which today in Chinese language, um, even big numbers like a million are spoken of in 10,000s. Mm. So a million is, you know, a hundred, 10,000s. Mm-hmm. So you still speak that way even now. So 10,000, you know, in those days, 10,000 was like the largest number you would, most people would need. Like if you live in a village, you know, what, what, what are you going to have 
in in an amount more than ten thousand, yeah. right? So ten thousand is like you know just mean meant everything. So thousands a really long time, and he's called the divine farmer because he's uh, attributed for giving Chinese people agriculture and civilization, and he's also the father of Chinese medicine. Mm-hmm. So he had these like magical powers. He could turn his stomach translucent and look inside and see what the plants are doing, and he could. Um, flush toxins if he ate a poisonous plant so mm-hmm. he wasn't bungling um, what he represents though really uh, what he represents is the collective wisdom of all the tribal chieftains and shamans of prehistorical pre-civilized china and of course it's that ethnic wisdom that creates civilization mm-hmm. and so he represents all of that and he represents that connection to nature that ability to turn the stomach translucent is what i was talking about earlier it's a metaphor because myths are metaphors it's a metaphor for the special connections to nature that shamans had above and beyond ordinary people you have to remember that even the most ordinary indigenous person fifteen thousand years ago had a much much deeper connection to nature than you or i Mm mm-hmm they knew the names of all the stars. Again, they listened to the sound of the cicada song and they knew what the weather was going to be like. Their house was made of plants. Their clothes were made of plants. Their, they grew all their own food or hunted it. They, In those days, there's no hospital. If you're sick, it's just magic or plants. Mm-hmm. So their connection to nature was you know, very tacit, very fundamental and necessary to their life and very direct. And so... Even the ordinary dude just living in a village had a deep and powerful connection to nature in those days. So then what to say of within that tribe of, let's say, 1,000 people or 10,000 people or 5,000 people or you know 500 people, within that tribe, along comes one person who's extraordinarily attuned, hmm. Right? extraordinarily attuned in a society of people that are already super attuned to nature you have one that's extraordinarily tuned and then all that he gets from nature all that he learns through his uh, connection through his direct perception through his experience um, spiritual and rational but mostly spiritual mostly direct all of that he then hands down to the next person in the tribe who's born with that extraordinary capacity. And he recognizes the extraordinary capacity in the children because he himself has it. Mm-hmm. So he recognizes, you know, who's going to, who's going to, uh, you know, who will have that power next. And so then he hands it down and that next, and so slowly like that, the techniques and methods and ways and, uh, and, and the ways of, taking the information that you receive from nature and using it to help your tribe, to help your tribe make decisions, to help deal with mental and physical illnesses in people in the tribe, to heal them, Mm -hmm. to create ceremonies that help actualize the myths, actualize the teachings, and create the myths and tell the myths. A lot of shamans do that. And the myths are the stories, the metaphors that help convey the connections that help convey the deeper, uh, ineffable, direct connections to nature, that help tell those stories, point to them, right? And usually 
those things then surround moments in nature like winter solstice or summer solstice and those so those rites and rituals that actualize the myth in the life of a person they do so at specific times that help also connect the person to nature around them so it's like the retelling of the story doesn't just connect the person to their to the to the nature wisdom it connects them to a specific time that that makes them feel a part of nature it also connects them to their own people their own ancestry their tribe their ethnicity makes them feel part of that lineage mm-hmm. of who they are. So retelling the myths and then helping to maintain, create and maintain the ceremonies that actualize those myths in the life of a person, the shaman would do all that. And he would then hand all that down to the next generation. And the next generation would evolve it further and further and further. And so slowly this, uh, if call it a science, if you will, this sensitivity grew and developed and evolved into the first medicine on this earth, which is Chinese medicine. And uh, that character, Shennong, represents all that. He represents all that wisdom handed down and all that sensitivity and all that work with nature, right? And uh, very powerful and very sad that a lot of that's lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think he can help to restore a lot of that. And, you know, then collective this collective wisdom was slowly evolved into the civilization that became china the han people moved to the yellow river around twelve thousand years ago and um then you know it just obviously influenced and affected them and affected all of china eventually so this character shannong the one of the origin stories is that he was meditating and he was boiling water and the leaf fell into his boiling water and then he drank it and exclaimed this is the emperor of all medicinal herbs or empress Uh, this is the empress of all medicinal herbs this is the king of all medicinal herbs you could translate it all those different ways Uh, so the founder of all herbal medicine really you could say you could argue on this earth but you know i wouldn't make that argument We, we could just say the founder of chinese medicine shandong uh, exclaims, this is the emperor of all medicinal herbs. Hmm. This is the king of all medicinal herbs. This is the best of the best. And, uh, you know, this is where you get into the crux of tea's story. You know, far too often, so often in Chinese and English, especially in English, let's say, let's just throw a number out there. Let's leave the yuanmo, let's leave that early hominid out of the story. Let's leave that because that we're not sure anyway. Mm-hmm. But okay. let that early hominids like chewing tea leaves and walking around naked and, you know, f- who knows how far back. But let's leave that story. Let's leave that part out. And let's just throw like a number, let's say 15 to 20,000 years based on that Neolithic village in Sichuan. So let's say 15 to 20,000 years, the this, this story of tea, let's say, begins around that time. Very ancient. And so many books on tea start with some sentence to the effect of for thousands of years tea was medicine to chinese people mm-hmm. and in that one sentence they jump all the way to the tang dynasty and the tang is 618 to 907 mm-hmm. so they so just as just as if tea was a thousand page book i said earlier the human part of the story would be page 999. Yeah. Most of the story is trees in nature 
long before humans were there, waiting for humans, waiting to talk to humans, cultivating wisdom to share with humans, you could say. And so then we could use that same analogy for the human part of tea. If the human story of tea was a thousand page book, right? Then, you know, really the historical record from Tang Dynasty on would only be like, you know, the last 100, 200 pages. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, from the Tang Dynasty, I would actually only be like the last 50 pages, but the whole like written record would be the last 200 pages or 100 pages. So the story, the human story of tea is also deep and old, 15, 20,000 years. And you want to jump over the first 19,000 of those 20,000 years with something saying like, you know, tea is medicine, was medicine to Chinese people for thousands of years. When I read that, even in the early days, in the in the 90s, when I first started getting into the tea, when I would read that sentence, I would it would just elicit so many questions in me. Like I would want to throw the book against the wall. Like what, <laughs> you know, what do you mean medicine? What does that mean? Like I want to know more about that time. Yeah. Medicine for what? Mm -hmm. What were they using it for? What does that mean? Like you know, at at, at what point did you know did it become beverage? My research into that, you know, into the recreationalization and commoditization of tea is basically that, you know, I basically have found two things, two, two aspects to that. The first is that that shift is incredibly modern and how modern depends where you stand. If you're in Yunnan, there are places where they still worship tea trees. Anything above 100 years old has an altar beneath it. Mm -hmm. And they're still praying to them, and it's still a huge and fundamental aspect of their spirituality. Um, you know, I first went to Yunnan in the late '90s and stayed with an, a tribe in, in near Laos and uh, for three months, and just tremendous spiritual connection to tea, and that's still present. And you go to Wuyi, and and where the is the birthplace of oolong tea in the north of Fujian, and you you know talk to my friends there who I stay with, and they'll tell you about when they were young, all the rituals, and that you had to be silent in the tea gardens and you know sometimes take off your shoes even and it says like huge tremendous respect you look at all the names of every tea and it's all stories of that highlight it's like that it's a gift from heaven that it's a connection to spirit you know you go back into all the history even into the Tang dynasty into the poems into the characters which we're going to talk about in part two of this dialogue and so much of it's filled with reverence and references to uh Zen Buddhism, Taoism, the island of the immortals, all this, uh, you know, spiritual talk. And so, you know, if in Wui, even, you know, the 60-year-old people remember a time when everything was reverent and everything was very spiritual. And then in Yunnan, it's still that way now. You can see that this shift is to recreational use is very modern. I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing. I just think it's terrible to forget, you know, human beings, we can be very, very, very... Uh, like generation centric and we can forget our past which is dangerous because then we repeat it mm -hmm. we lose touch with the uh, deeper perspectives you got to have a broader mind in this story especially uh, especially because it goes deeply into nature and beyond um just the human realm it goes out into nature and and so the first thing that i've discovered as far as that that kind of um that kind of recreationalization and commoditization of tea is that it's very modern mm. and how modern depends on where. 
And the second aspect of that that I've uncovered is that, you know, Chinese uh, worldviews can be sometimes different from the Western perspective. And in one way, one way that it's different is that we have a tendency when something, let's say, spiritual or religious starts to be uh, worldly, mm-hmm. we kind of lose respect for it. So when we go into a situation where there's like a, let's say a teacher is going to give a spiritual lecture, and then at the end there's a you know, request for money or they're trying to sell something. Mm-hmm. So they've, you know, they're saying they want to help us, but then in the end there's a pitch for, you know, to really get the information you have to pay $300. We get sketched out. Mm-hmm. We have, I mean, and then this has to do with a lot to do with Christianity and what its influence on our culture, that separation of nature and sacred of of the world and the church of, you know, God and nature mm-hmm. and nature, bad, God, good kind of thing. I'm oversimplifying, but that kind of philosophy has made it so that we, um, you know, we separate the sacred and the mundane very strongly. The sacred happens over there and the mundane happens over here. And that was just never a part of uh, the Far Eastern worldview. So the, you know, to the Asians, the Far Easterns, you know, that separation is just not there. So when, you know, when tea started to, in the beginning, tea was all wild. It wasn't domesticated until near the end of its story. It was all harvested wild Mm -hmm. until, you know, let's say around 2,000, 2,500 years ago. I don't know, 1,500 years ago, somewhere around that time, um, you know, maybe a little bit earlier, maybe a couple thousand. We don't really know when that began, but the, the, Prior to that, it was all gathered wild. But when it was domesticated, when it did become a commodity, when it did become something that provided for the families, gave them clothing and housing, that isn't, for them, that's not a, that doesn't mean less respect. It hasn't degraded it. Mm-hmm. It has increased their respect for it. Yeah. So this is kind of what I'm saying is that, you know, for us, when you start selling religion, it kind of devalues it. But in Asia, when something religious starts to also provide on an earthly level, they have even more respect. Mm. The reverence deepens. The respect, the spiritual value of that thing deepens. It grows. It doesn't Mm. decrease. It increases. So their respect and reverence increases. So they pray to it more now that it it provides them. They're practical people. That actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it, it's, you know, this is why Eastern uh, religions like Buddhism and things are, you know, you could say, uh, potentially more connected to the day-to-day life. They're more connect, they're more uh, connected to, like, they're focused on how you live the religion. Mm-hmm. And that's what, you know, the in Japanese and Chinese, like, you know, the, the words for uh, often that were used traditionally to talk about, like, a discourse is just truth talk. Mm-hmm. And when the Christians first started missionizing in China and Japan, they had a lot of problems with this because the you know the there's just no concept of religion in the minds of the people. There's just truth. Yeah. And so like they would they would come to church like wholeheartedly on Sunday and the priest would be like, But dude, you know, you were going to the Buddhist temples during funerals and the Taoist I saw you praying at the Taoist temple on Wednesday and they were like, Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I'm here and I love Jesus, right? Yeah. Like they didn't like they didn't have that ability to like separate and say, well, if you do that, you can't do that. Yeah. 
right? It's just like truth is truth. Mm-hmm. And there's not a, you know, your God is your God, and these gods are these gods. And they didn't, like, uh, have any problem with any of that. Mm-hmm. So uh, this this kind of skipping over of the huge part of the story of tea with this sentence that, you know, tea was medicine to Chinese people for thousands of years, I, I think betrays the story of tea. Mm. And you're left then with this little history or historical record of tea, which we're going to talk about next time. We will get into that. I, I'm not um, trying to sell that out. I'm not trying to dis- completely dismantle it or argue against it or say that it's worthless. It's obviously not. I'm incredibly interested in the history, just as I'm incredibly uh, mindful and respectful of science and scientific inquiry and the rational mind and deductive and inductive logic, etc., I try to cultivate those things in my own life, and I have, and I have deep respect. And as I said, without them, we couldn't live sane lives, and we couldn't form uh, society or have meaningful dialogue with each other, or advance our species, or advance ourselves as individuals. Like you know, thinking that because you get into some to spiritual practice, that that means now you can be irrational is very silly. One of the most foolish things that any human can do, whether it's you know, life wisdom or spiritual wisdom, etc., is, you know, this is a, one of the illnesses and bondages in Zen Buddhism, which is, you know, we spoke about this in an earlier podcast as well. It's, it's uh, continuing to believe something, even though in your own, your own experience and evidence is to the contrary, mm-hmm. right? Trying to change the terrain to fit the map instead of changing the map to fit the terrain. Yeah. Being attached. So that's a, that's a danger. Mm. You know, and saying you're spiritual so you reject scientific truth means you're rejecting truth. You're not actually practicing if you're rejecting truth. Yeah. But, you know, it goes the other way too. A scientist once asked the Dalai Lama, uh, what would you do if there was a scientific experiment that proved many of your beliefs wrong? And he said, well, I would, I would research that and really read it and if it turned out to be thus then i would change my views that is the teaching of the buddha Mm -hmm. so the buddha would want me to do that so that would be following my religion you know to change my view but then he bounced it back on the interviewer and said what if you had a deep and profound spiritual experience that contradicted some of what you thought was scientific fact Hmm. right (laughs) the true scientist would explore that that's right the true scientist would be open to uh, always new ways of exploring. Mm. They would then try to maybe use the scientific method to verify and and objectify what they had experienced. Mm-hmm. But they would be open to the possibility that what they knew is wrong. Because, you know, science is the history of one generation proving the previous wrong as it advances. And the, often the the previous generation gets stuck in their views and thinks think they're solid when they're not they're only part so so both of these are aspects of being human and uh both are important but i don't like that skipping over all of tea in just that one sentence and that sentence opened so many questions for me um and that's when i started exploring more the the shamanic relationship to tea the um the the religious, which we're going to talk about next time, because the three, the three or four, we're going to say four, the four big religions are a huge part of T's story, both historical and prehistorical, myth, mythological, on all levels, factual, uh, historical data, 
also a myth, also, uh, you know, more of the experience that you get through drinking tea and practicing tea, the four main religions are a huge part of tea story, right? Sometimes people, because tea has become so commoditized, they think that like we are practic- we're doing something strange. Mm-hmm. They look at our tradition like, oh, you guys are weird, yeah, right? Because their experience of tea is going to like tea shops and, and people smoking and talking about tea in China or, you know, sipping this one and that one and talking about its flavors. Yeah. And their, their experience is very recreational, to which I would reply, first of all, uh, I'm a very spiritual person and I, want, I try to do all, in, I'm a Zen Buddhist, so I try to do everything in my life with Zen. Mm-hmm. How you do anything is how you do everything. I try to live my whole life in as f- spontaneous and free and yet mindful and centered and awake and present as I possibly can. So I ceremonialize everything. I could ceremonialize, I, I, I do ceremonialize often brushing my teeth, writing, etc. Everything I do. Um, and so, uh, you know, of course, tea is a part of my life. And so, of course, I would approach it that way. And I'm not asking that everyone do so. If you don't approach tea that way, if it's more of a hobby to you, I'm fine with that. It's also a hobby to me. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's or. I don't think it's a medicinal, spiritual elixir or it's a beverage. We can erase that or and put an and. Sometimes it's a beverage to me. Sometimes it's a hobby. I'm interested in those things. I'm one of the biggest tea geeks on this planet. We literally publish a magazine filled with tea geekery every (laughs) month, 60 pages of it. So I'm I'm very interested in that aspect of tea as well. But it's just, you know, primarily tea is a spiritual tool for me in cultivation. And I do so because that's the type of person I am. And that could be it. That could be the end of the story. You could just permit me that. I'm not asking that you do the same as me. Mm-hmm. I'm not asking that you approach the story of tea or tea drinking in the way that I do. So don't demand that I approach it in the way that you do. Let me use tea the way I want to, and I'll let you use tea the way that you want to. I want to use it ceremonially. If you want to use it as a beverage and a hobby, that's fine. We can still meet. We both love tea. We can. We still have things to talk about. I can geek out with you. Maybe you can open your mind a little bit and meditate with me. If not, I'll, I'll come to you. I'll geek out with you. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we can meet. So, uh, in the, in the same way, you know, I, I, I feel like, you know, sometimes there's that because tea has become so commoditized because it's become so rationalized, there's a kind of judgment on us that we're weird for treating it spiritually. And my first answer to that is that that's just the type of person I am and live and let live. Let me be that type of person. But actually that's the smaller argument that I have in my arsenal. Mm-hmm. That let's say I'm a samurai. That's my little knife. That's not my katana. Mm-hmm. My katana is that dude. Tap tap tap. Bonk 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 on the microphone. Bonk 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 on your head. Right. I'm not just making this up. There are thousands and thousands of years of tradition of ceremonializing, spiritualizing, ritualizing creating myth around tea, creating ceremony around tea, creating uh, ritual around tea, and using tea as part of a spiritual self-cultivation. I didn't make this up. Mm. I'm the last in a long and ancient line of spiritual practitioners, of human beings with a deep spiritual connection to tea. Mm -hmm. It is fundamental to all the four religions of China fundamental a huge part of tea story is its relationship with these four uh 
religions, and a huge part of those religion story is a relationship to D. It comes out of that. That deeply predates all of the uh, all of the recre- recreational use of tea. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I'm just doing this because that's the type of person I am. Right? Actually, if you took all the tea lovers that have ever been on this earth, what I'm saying is that we're the majority. Those who are drinking tea just as a hobby or beverage, you're the minority. You stand in a very, very small minority of the humans that have used tea in the last 20,000 years. Mm. As I said, let's, you know, we don't know when tea was domesticated. Let's say 2,500 years ago, 1,500 years ago, 3,000 years ago. Let's take it farther. Let's say 3,500. Who knows? Let's say sometime like that. You still have behind that like at least 17,000 years mm-hmm. of tea as a wild tree in nature that was prayed to that altars were put beneath that was used only in because it was so precious and rare because trees often had names mm-hmm. and people were you know uh, you know would seek them out these shamans and use them both in their own practice and connection to nature but also in their uh way of then communicating what they've learned with their tribe and healing uh, both physical mental spiritual illnesses that leaf falling into Shandong's boiling water is the nature's call to the human. It's it's a it's a that's the, one of the meanings of that myth is that nature's speaking to us. Nature's calling out, reaching out, connecting to us through this plant, and they were using it for all those reasons. That that was a big part of its medicine. Remember, this is the emperor of all medicinal herbs, mm. right? And what it's doing ultimately, we can speak about that in lots of language. But what it's ultimately doing is tea brings nature to society. It's connecting humans. To nature in those days when the humans lived really deeply in nature and they were extremely sensitive you could say that like what i'm one of the phrases that i say a lot which is you know nature is always speaking to us and tea helps us understand what she's saying hmm. tea's like a translator that opens the door it's like one of those things in like star trek or some sci-fi movie that you put in your ear and now you can understand the language of the alien people you know yeah. like and they can understand you just because you put this little device on your head or in your ear, tease that device. It makes us makes it so we can understand the language of the waterfall and the birds and the you know. And that's so much more needed now than it was back then. But back then, when you had remember, the average person is incredibly more sensitive to all those languages, speaks all those languages, the language of waterfall and bird and stars and. Uh, seasons and trees and plants etc they speak those language that language far more fluently than we do we've lost that language and then you have these shamans who are hypersensitive they speak that language more fluently even than their people and then they're using tea which even enhances that further mm-hmm. Whew. you can see why it's the most powerful of all medicinal herbs because it's the one that you can use every day a lot of the other herbs if you have a particular illness and you take it it's good for you mm-hmm. if you don't have that illness it's toxic Right, but this one you can take every day, and this one's helping to amplify your ability to connect to nature, connect to yourself, connect to spirit, and connect to uh, others as well. Right, the first materia medica to mention really the use for tea uh, listed it as to brighten the eyes, mm-hmm. and th- this is powerful to brighten the eyes because in Chinese uh, ancient philosophy there's three kind of energies in the human being in the world the first one is uh, Jing which is vitality it's uh, it's the energy that comes from from your parents from your DNA 
it, the, we all have genetic limitations. No matter how healthy we live, no matter what healthy live, lifestyle we live, we, we might be susceptible to diabetes or this or that. There's genetic stuff that came to us. And so Jing is also our sexual energy. Uh, it's that place you dig deep down into when you need a reservoir, when you're running and you want to quit and you can still go on further. Jing is, is all of that. And then Qi is the movement. We talked about Qi last time. It's the movement of all things. On the mm -hmm. gross level, that means the movement of our lungs as they inflate, deflate, the beating of the heart, the pumping of the blood, etc. That's the gross level. On the subtle level, it's the uh, subatomic particles swirling around their nucleus. It's the vibration of all matter. It's the energy and flow and breath uh, of the world. And then the last one is Shun. And Shun is the Holy Ghost, the spirit, heaven energy. And so in Chinese cosmology, when the shun descends into the heart, the eyes light up, mm. which is why sages in Chinese paintings are often depicted with glowing eyes, because when the shun's in the heart, the eyes light up. Mm -hmm. So essentially what that first materia medica was saying was, what, what, tea, what, what is tea medicine for? It's medicine for the spirit. It's medicine for awakening the eyes. It's medicine for seeing properly. And I don't just mean seeing with the physical eyes. I mean seeing with the whole being, mm. seeing connection, feeling, uh, listening, understanding nature, right? And and allowing the spirit into the heart. And that awakens the whole, organi the whole organism. When the spirit descends into your heart, boom, the whole organism, like they truly are. And then we say, seeing things as they are, see, and, and then listening to nature, honoring nature. This is the like medicinal heritage of tea. When we say tea was medicine to, to Chinese people for thousands of years, we don't mean like they drank it when they had a stomach ache, right? <laughs> it's not, the Chinese medicine isn't about, it doesn't treat diseases. Mm -hmm. That's Western medicine. That's allopathic medicine. You have a chemical that treats a disease. Yeah. But Western, but Chinese medicine treats the patient. It's not about the disease. Mm. So there's not like, what does tea cure? Oh, it's good for the liver. That's all modern. And mm -hmm. some a lot of that research is also um, specious. It's also uh, dangerous because there's, uh, you know, there's, because the it's often paid for by people selling tea, right? So, uh so that's the so that's the the you know danger of of getting too much into the like teas anti-cancerous or antioxidants i'm not saying that those things aren't true they might be but uh, a lot of those studies are paid for by people who are selling tea also i don't know but traditionally when we say tea was medicine for thousands of years we didn't mean that it was had antioxidants and was anti-cancerous it meant that it was a it was a it's a shun tonic mm -hmm. so um it's it's a you know, of those Jing Chi Shun, it's a Shun tonic, it's a Holy Ghost tonic, it's a spirit tonic. And remember, it's the greatest of all tonics, according to the legendary founder of all Chinese medicine, who uh, really represents the collective wisdom that created that that body of knowledge in saying that this plant, we can use it every day and it can awaken our eyes. Hmm. It can awaken our spirit. And because it's grown improperly now, it actually can cause negative symptoms. People get stomach aches. They drink tea in the morning. They can't sleep at night. All kinds of other stuff. Mm -hmm. But that's because it's not that wild forest ancient tree stuff. This is why I'm, I never regard uh, scientific studies of tea uh, very much. Because when they when they study tea and they say it has this or that, they're always studying low-grade like tea bags or, or just low-quality tea mm -hmm. grown by humans covered in agrochemicals. 
They're never like using living tea as the basis of their study. I hope more of that research begins. And I'm sure they'll find that tea then is adaptogenic. It's good for our body, good for our spirit, good for our mind, you know, at least in the sense that it relaxes us. And all diseases on earth are either caused or compounded by stress. Mm-hmm. No matter what you have from a cold to cancer, it is either caused by stress or it's made worse by stress. So relaxing, of course, is healing no matter what. Being less stress-free is, is good no matter what. So at least on that level, tea is medicine. Mm-hmm. But deeper, it opens the eyes. It brings the Holy Ghost down into the heart. It, it brings the heaven energy down into the heart. It awakens the being. It inflames the being. This is the the medicinal heritage of, of tea as it's uh, as it's you know relates to the of the of the four uh, spiritual religious traditions of China. This is the first one, the shamanic one. We'll cover these four, I think, and then we'll wrap up this part one. Mm-hmm. And next time we'll get into the more dates and facts and uh, details, which will be part two. Mm. So uh, part one, you know, is a lot of philosophy, a lot of uh, getting into the heritage of tea. And it's, you know, we talk about the these four religions. And really the story of tea is synonymous with these four. And the story of these four is also synonymous with tea. They go together and uh, they only really divorced in very very modern times, so uh, we, we you know we it's it's not um, it, they are the like soil out of which the the human relationship to tea grew, mm-hmm. and the first and most important one, which is often neglected, usually we talk about three religions of China, but there's the fourth, the indigenous one, the shaman one, and that's the one we've been talking about mostly today is this, you know, using tea in this way as nature medicine, and then that. Tradition slowly evolved into Taoism, mm. refined into Taoism, which is like a very refined and beautiful version of shamanism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more than that, but that's just a you know way of summing up some, something that, of where it came from, of its origin. And uh, the Taoists viewed tea as a as a way of connecting to nature, as an alchemy. It's a beautiful alchemy of water. Of all the five elements, in China there are five elements, right? Of, of water and fire and wood, which is the tea, and earth, which is the teaware, and metal, which is the kettle. But metal is also the method, the organizer, you, the spirit. Mm-hmm. So these five elements coming together to create this tea, this alchemy of creating the uh, Im- immortal elixir. Immortality was the, kind of the aim of... Uh, of Taoism. For some, that meant physical immortality, like transcending death. But oftentimes, you know, emperors would follow recipes and die because they would drink mercury or something because they thought these recipes were literal mm-hmm. when actually they were techniques of meditation. They were ways of transcending the self and connecting to the Tao, connecting to the great nature. And in that, of course, you're deathless because the opposite of life is not death. The opposite of death is birth. Life has no opposite. You turn over a dead log and it's teeming with life. It's teeming with insects and organisms. Life. So when you're connecting to life, capital L, of course, you're connecting to that which is deathless and birthless and transcendent. And um, you, you can do that physically, spiritually, you know, mentally, etc. So um, some sometimes there were literal attempts and whether those were successful, I don't know. You know, maybe people were living hundreds of years. Maybe they were living thousands of years. Maybe there's immortals off somewhere. I don't know. Um, I'm open-minded to all of that. But uh, certainly, tea was one of the elixirs for connecting to heaven energy, connecting to shun, connecting to great nature, 
and through that connecting to the Tao. And they've used the alchem alchemical practice of it, a huge part of what they did on a day-to-day -day level everywhere. And they would, you know, in those days, tea's still wild. And there were famous trees even with famous names. They would seek out these wild trees and use their medicine, just like the shamans had done before them, right? And then Buddhism comes to China. Buddhism comes to China and... You could, and Zen is born amongst many kinds of Buddhism in, in the early days when it first started coming to China. It came around the Himalayas to the north uh, through all those kingdoms that used to be there, Bactria and and all those uh, ancient kingdoms that no longer exist where, you know, Tajikistan is and Turkey and all that. It came around that way. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, this is an oversimplification, but you could say that Zen Buddhism was the baby of Buddhism and Taoism. Hmm. Buddhism was kind of dying in India, you could say, or being absorbed into Hinduism and slowly, you know, going away. And the soil in China was very fertile. And so it took hold there and evolved and became something new. This is called syncretism. Religions don't replace old religions. They merge always, mm -hmm. right? And so you could say that Zen is the baby of Taoism and Buddhism. Uh, that's an oversimplification, I know, but, but it's true. And um, Zen... Zen monks were the first people to, on a large scale, domesticate tea. Mm -hmm. In fact, it was through Zen monasteries that the mainstream of China was introduced to tea. You know, of course, by that time, tea had already been around for a long, long, long time. but uh, And been a part of both uh, shamanistic and Taoist traditions, especially in Yunnan and Sichuan. You know, especially in those areas. Mm but elsewhere as well. And it had already been around a long time. It reached the mainstream. So its introduction to the mainstream, its road towards beverage, towards day-to-day -day consumption, towards daily consumption, was through the Zen monastery. It was introduced to, through the Zen monastery. And the Zen monks, of course, used it because they can't drink alcohol. They can't take, in Buddhism, we don't take intoxicants, right? So it's, it was a way for, for there to be a beverage to offer as hospitality to people that's not alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Um, also, it, you know, it, it keeps you awake. It, it, you know, if people ask me, and I've been teaching meditation a couple decades now, you know, and if somebody asked me to describe the meditative mind in as few words as possible, I would say calm and awake. And tea also makes you feel calm and awake. Hmm. In fact, one of the, another origin story of tea comes through Zen Buddhism, which is that the founder of Zen Buddhism, Bodhidharma, he was meditating uh, in, in his nine year retreat and he started to feel sleepy and fall asleep. And of, of course, he's a fierce lion of a warrior, a bodhisattva, which means spiritual warrior. And so he tore off his own eyelids and because he was angry that he was falling asleep and he flung them. And where they landed is where the first tea bush sprouted. Mm. Of course, this this story is uh, uh, celebrating the, the connection between the meditative mind and, and the experience of drinking tea. Mm -hmm. And so the Zen Buddhists viewed tea as one of the five essential mindfulness practices which are seated meditations, zazen, walking meditation, um, uh, sitting in nature in a powerful spot, and feeding fish, which is actually, I, when I first heard that, I thought that was that's strange. Why would that be one of the five essential mindfulness practices? But then I remember that when I was a child, when I, where I grew up, there was a small lake behind my house, and every time I was troubled, I would go down and feed the fish hmm. when I was growing up, and I always felt better for doing so. So there's like real powerful healing in that, I guess. Mm -hmm.
And they celebrated that. So tea was essential, though. We say cha cha and iwe, tea and Zen, one flavor, right? When the Zen, when the the Buddhist monks of Japan first started traveling to China to bring Buddhism back to Japan, they also brought tea and teaware and tea seeds and things. And uh, people asked them why, and they literally wrote down, well, because the masters there said if if Zen is to uh, prosper in Japan, then tea must also, because they're one. So it was a huge part of the daily life of a monastery. They grew their own tea, so there was farming involved. And then they processed their own tea, so there was processing involved. And then they created ceremonial ceremonies to prepare the tea. Mm. And so there was ceremonial preparation involved. And all these aspects were a huge part of their daily life, growing, eventually sharing with the public, you could say selling, so that they could support their monasteries. Um, that came later. But, you know, growing, processing, and preparation were all ceremonialized in Zen and all reached the mainstream through through Zen Buddhism. And so for them, it was mindfulness, it was meditation, it was a way of connecting to the self, to the present moment, to being more present, to being more uh, awake, and to to focusing and, and putting your devotion in motion, putting your, your meditative mind in, in action, uh, helping translate what you cultivate on the cushion to daily life. Hmm. And then finally, the confusion... The Confucians saw tea as a way of cultivating what they call ren, which is inner dignity, nobility, a ceremony for connecting human to human and human to nature. And so through the connection and ritualization of all life and, and tea being a big part of it is a way of showing hospitality to guests, of c cultivating kindness and respect for, your, for others, which is a huge part of tea to this day. And so tea is very much, fundamentally, tea's story is very much not just wrapped up in the four religions of China, it is the four religions and the four religions are tea. It's just a big part of them. Its story is their story and their story is its story. Both in terms of us sitting here and having a podcast and reflecting back on thousands of years and in terms of, you know, because you can, you, you sit and just and, and philosophize and have a conversation like this about thousands of years and we're just jumping over and randomly talking about various aspects of those thousands of years. And in that, you can forget to honor and respect the lifetimes, like yours, hmm. right? Is your lifetime worth, you know, skipping over in some summary a thousand years from now? <laughs> when people are sitting and looking back somewhere and having their own version of a podcast, not to mention that they don't even say your name. Hmm. If they don't even regard your experience and time on this earth for 50 or 100 years, you see your, there's a... You know, we ha we can't do that. We have to respect and honor that. Like when we say tea was a part of Zen Buddhism, we mean the the birth, life, and death of generation after generation of monks. Mm. Same with Taoism. Same with Confucianism. Same with those shamans, right? We mean generations and generations and generations of human beings with their own stories and names and and devotion to this plant. Mm -hmm. So. The, dev the spiritual devotion to this plant is is unprecedented. I don't think there's any, you know, it's the second most consumed substance on this earth. And I don't think there's anything in all of human history and humankind, prehistory, the whole human experience. I don't know if there's anything that has had as much energy devoted to it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it created the modern geopolitics of our world. It formed the economy of the British Empire and and created and, and, and much of Europe and and at that time, they were controlling the whole world. And pr prior to that, there's the old saying, right, that tea doesn't belong to China. China belongs to tea. Hmm. It was it was the only thing that would semi-pacify the northern tribes. 
because they loved drinking it. Some some scientists suggest that they were missing vitamins in their diet, which is almost all meat, and so they liked boiling the tea with milk and butter because it provided nutrients they needed. But it's more than that, right? They weren't sitting around saying like, "Oh, I'm I'm deficient in vitamin D. I need more tea bricks." <laughs> There's aspects of it that go beyond just their physical need for it. They had a spiritual need for it, and it did help. They traded it for horses, and it did help pacify them mm-hmm. and bring peace. and And then it spread. It's just huge amount of devotion you know both in in artistic sense of generations after generations of people devoted to the creation of teapots and tea whisks and tea scoops and and all the uh tea utensils that have been used for thousands of years and then huge uh amount of devotion in in the processing of tea amongst the farmers going back to zen monks who were the first processors and beyond that to the wild finding of tea and collecting of tea and the tea's association with with all those things, and one of the earliest historical references for tea, uh, which you know, in those days a master was a master. It didn't matter if they were Taoist or Buddhist. People, you know, to find a teacher, you had to like go explore the mountains, and they they didn't want to be found. Mm. They didn't have a website. Yeah, right. You had to like find them. And one of the earliest mentions is in a story where these two acolytes, these two young people, are looking for a master. They want to learn, and. Uh, they come to a mountain and it's just in passing. They come to a mountain and one of them says, oh, there's no master up there. And the other one says, how do you know? And the first one says, because there's no tea growing there. Mm. And if there's not tea nearby, then there's not meditation. If there's not meditation, there's not a master. Right. So already in those days, the from the tradition of the shamans who would make their huts near the tea trees, mm. you know, because they use that plant so much. So from that, you know, the early Taoist sages and Zen Buddhists, you know, every tea mountain in China has a Zen monastery on it. They, they either went there because there was wild tea growing there or because it was a good place for them to bring tea and plant it. Mm-hmm. And so they, there was tea, you know, was a huge part of, of their practice and where they chose to live and, and a big part of their day-to-day life. And a big, and the, and, the, and that there's so many generations and so many lives of shamans, of, Taoists, of Buddhists, of Confucians, uh, practicing and devoting their life to tea. There's a whole, there's so many traditions of artists creating teaware, so many traditions of farmers learning to process tea, so many traditions of uh, brewing tea and preparing tea in certain methods that have been handed down over centuries, like the traditions that we practice here at the Tsechat. Um, these traditions are, some of them, you know, maybe thousands of years old, others hundreds of years old, and they've been handed down and evolved and grown. And that was all done by the by lifetimes of practice, by human beings who devoted their life to tea. And so, and there's a, just so, there's so much devotion to this plant, literal prayers, altars and altars and altars of prayers beneath tons and tons and thousands and thousands of tea trees, tons and tons of tea drunk. And uh, in every bowl, we can find a distillation of all that devotion if we choose to. And so that's a good place to start for the uh, getting like some context and basis for the more like prehistoric, undocumented aspects of of tea and its story. Next time we can dive more into like dates and facts Mm -hmm. and characters in in the more recent times. Mm -hmm. Wow. Thank you, Buddha. So... This was just the intro, and uh, it's just amazing. Blows my mind how deep 
the history, if you think about it and, and how detailed it is. And, and we were sitting and talking for over an hour. And this is just the, the introduction to the, and the outline of it. So looking into this humble bowl filled with leaves and water, we can really imagine and see all those generations that have devoted so much energy and attention um, to this plant. And uh, thank you again, Buddha. And thank you all listeners. I hope to see you again in the next episode um, where we discuss more of the details and the dates of the history of tea. In the meantime, enjoy some beautiful tea. Thank you. Love you guys. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then help us reach more people by sharing this episode with your friends and family. Your likes, comments, and shares will go a long way and are deeply appreciated. Another direct way to support this project and the free tea center here in Miali, Taiwan that you can come and visit yourself um, is to sign up for our monthly ad-free magazine that covers all aspects of tea from brewing and processing techniques to history, lore, spirituality, and also the community aspect as well. It comes with a beautiful, sustainably produced tea every month. To subscribe or to learn more about it, go to globalteahut.org. If you're interested in the more linear aspects of tea brewing, then perhaps go and check out our YouTube channel, also called the Global Tea Hut, where we have a whole series called Brewing Tea.